Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hi, and thanks for coming to FT.com. I'm Cardiff Garcia, a New York-based writer for FT Alphaville, and I'm joined today by Jan Hatzius, Chief U.S. Economist of Goldman Sachs, and he's here to talk to us about his outlook for next year, the state of fiscal and monetary policy, and a few other things besides. So we've got a lot to cover, but I want to start with fiscal policy, right? So at the time of this taping, Congress has yet to figure out what it's going to do about extending the payroll tax cut, Medicare doc fix, and unemployment benefits. And in your outlook for next year, you've got growth already slowing from about 3% annualized now in the fourth quarter to roughly 1% in the first half of the year. And that assumed that the payroll tax cut would get extended. So talk about the importance of these fiscal measures to the economy earlier next year. So the baseline that's currently built in is uh, is indeed that the payroll tax cut gets extended, but the unemployment benefits lapse. Those are the two most important parts of what needs to be um, discussed uh, and what just failed, I guess, uh, in um, on fiscal policy. If the payroll tax cut were to lapse as well, that would mean some additional downside. It's about $110 billion of disposable income, depending on what kind of multiplier you want to assume. That could certainly take off another half percentage point or more uh, from, from growth. So I think that would be a pretty significant risk on the, on the downside. Our assumption, though, is that probably the payroll tax cut will get extended, and there's a very good chance. Uh, I think still that the unemployment benefits are going to be extended as well. If both of those get extended, then you have a little bit of upside. You know, uh, I don't think that uh, that we're looking at uh, at zero growth. I don't think we're looking at a recession. I do think that growth is uh, uh, is going to be a little slower in the first half of the year, and fiscal policy is part of that. Okay. You had a note out last week discussing the U.S. economy's exposure to Europe, and you said in that note that you expect what's happening overseas to shave about one percentage point off GDP growth next year, with a big chunk of that coming through banking spillover. So tell us what you meant and, and how bad you think it's going to be. So I'd say there are, there are, broadly speaking, three channels through which what's happening in Europe is going to affect the U.S. Uh, the first, the most obvious one, is reduced exports to the euro area. That's quite small. Uh, the U.S. only exports about 2% of its GDP to the euro area. So you would need to see some very large declines in imports, much larger than what I think is plausible, to get a really big effect from that. Uh, the second is tightening of financial conditions, re- lower stock prices, uh, stronger dollar. Um, that you know has kind of gone on and off a little bit because markets, of course, have been quite volatile. Right now, we'd say that might take off a quarter to a half point uh, from GDP growth. Uh, uh, so through that channel. And then the, then the last one uh, is the banking channel and the linkages between the banking system of Europe and the banking system of the U.S. And again, there are, there are a couple of different uh, channels there, but the one that we focused on uh, in some of our recent research is the holdings of U.S. assets by euro-area banks and uh, the pressure to deleverage on the European banking system uh, and uh, the numbers that we came up with under assumptions that seem 
uh, you know, perhaps a bit more negative than, uh, than the baseline, yeah. but not implausible, is sort of three or four tenths off of GDP growth through that particular channel. Uh, so that's, uh, that's something that um, uh, is probably going to have more of an impact in the first half of next year than, uh, than it has, uh, has had so far. Okay, let's switch to monetary policy for a second. So the Fed didn't do anything last week, but it wasn't expected to. But there's been a lot of talk about what it might do either at the January meeting or at least in the first quarter, first half of next year. So one is more clarity in its communication strategy, possibly publishing uh, its forecast for the federal funds rate, maybe another round of QE, including a big, you know, a big part of uh, that being MBS purchases. Right. Um, and I, I think they're even considering now possibly uh, a more explicit target for uh, inflation and maybe even for unemployment. What do you think the Fed should do uh, in the first part of next year that's within the realm of the possible? So I'll tell you what our forecast is, and then I'll talk a little bit about what, uh, you know, what we think uh, they could do in addition to that. Uh, you know, as far as forecast is concerned, we expect a lot of the things you just mentioned. Uh, we do expect a path for the federal funds rate, or rather a collection of paths, because uh, it probably will represent the views of the, the different uh, FOMC participants. It's not going to be one path that will be decided by, by the committee, uh, but we think that probably happens at the January FOMC meeting. Uh, we think uh, a, a, an inflation target, so a, which is a small step really going from uh, the man, you know what, what they're saying now, the mandate consistent rate of inflation to saying the inflation target. We think that probably also happens uh, at the January FOMC meeting. Uh, and we do expect some additional QE, probably largely through mortgages, though probably not yet at the January meeting. That, uh, that we think doesn't happen until later in the first half, uh, maybe closer to, to, to the middle of the year. Right. Uh, in terms of what they... What they, what they should do or what they could do if they wanted to produce additional stimulus and, and help the economy get back to full employment more quickly. One thing that we've suggested uh, and that we think has some very desirable properties is uh, a nominal GDP target. Uh, we continue to be far below the pre-crisis trend of, uh, of nominal GDP. We haven't really made up any of the gap that opened up this unprecedented gap, really, in, in, in the data of the, the last few decades, at least, uh, this unprecedented gap that opened up in 2007, 2008. We haven't made up any of it. Uh, and we think that if, the, if the, the FOMC adopted a nominal GDP level target, that could um, get you back to uh, the dual mandate, uh, inflation and unemployment, more quickly than the policy they're pursuing now. We don't expect that as our, as our forecast. We don't think that they are about to move to a nominal GDP target. So there's a bit of a difference here uh, between what we think might be a sensible option and what they're actually likely to do uh, in the foreseeable future. Okay, Let, let's talk a little more, though, about nominal GDP targeting, because it was, it was your endorsement of the idea in October that, that really rejuvenated the debate over the merits of the idea. Um, we could probably talk about this for a very long time, but we don't have time to do that. So. Let me just throw a couple of the more common objections to the idea at you and, and get your reaction sure. to that. One is that to get NGDP, the NGDP level back to its trend, its pre-crisis trend, would require a period of catch-up inflation. And I think what a lot of people worry about is that the Fed can't engineer the right kind of inflation, that because there's so much slack in labor markets, 
you won't end up with the kind of virtuous wage inflation that you'd hope for. Instead, you might end up with higher food and gas prices, maybe because investors would react to something like this and they'd push up commodities prices because that's a market where resources are very much constrained. So can, can you address that objection first? So what it requires is a period of strong, stronger nominal GDP growth. It doesn't necessarily require a, a period of, uh, of higher inflation. Uh, I mean, it's certainly possible that uh, uh, most of this, in fact, I, I think it's likely in our simulations of uh, what a nominal GDP target uh, that's sort of enforced via uh, via, via, via additional quantitative easing, what that might look like. Our, our um, simulations would su suggest most of it actually comes through the real side rather than through the inflation side. Uh, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's entirely clear uh, that, uh, that you would get significantly higher inflation. The other point is that, of course, we have a lot of slack at the moment. So the baseline, uh, what would happen in the absence of a shift to a nominal GDP target, is probably declining inflation. At least that's what, what I think is likely. So you would, uh, relative to that baseline, you might see higher inflation, but in absolute terms, might not, not actually be that, uh, uh, that high. Now, if you did get somewhat higher inflation, um, then you know, we would say that, that is, uh, that's part of, the, part of the story. There is, of course, some risk. Uh, you know, no, uh, uh, no, no, it's, it's, it's rare that you get a potentially significant reward without any risk. I do think there's some risk that uh, you could see instability in long-term inflation expectations. I think that's true with uh, most ways in, in, of, of making uh, monetary policy you know, more, more accommodative than it is now. If you try to be much more aggressive, then there will be some risk to longer-term inflation expectations. I would say one thing for nominal GDP targeting compared with other options, though, uh, which is that there's a natural exit strategy for a nominal GDP level target that you wouldn't have, for example, with a simple increase in the, in the inflation target. If you just said we're, we're increasing the inflation target to you know, 4% or 5%, uh, it wouldn't really be obvious at what point that uh, temporary period of higher inflation uh, should end. So I think the risk of unmooring long-term inflation expectations would be pretty large in that, uh, uh, in that case. But with a nominal GDP target, it'd be pretty clear you want to get back to the pre-crisis trend. Once you're at the pre-crisis trend, the, you know the, you will need to see a, uh, a tightening of, of policy. Uh, and at that point, uh, the markets should also expect that uh, the extra accommodation would be pared back. You know, when you look back at what happened with QE2, right? One interpretation of it is that at a time when deflation really was threatening, um, you know, it raised inflation expectations asset prices climbed again. For a little while, it seemed like the economy was doing better. But once the signaling mechanism wore off and the Fed, again, could no longer credibly commit to continuing on with easing for as long as it would take to, you know, to reduce unemployment meaningfully or you know, keep the economy going, uh, the effect wore off too. And that's, I think, what led a lot of people to conclude that monetary policy was effectively constrained and what it could do. And this, again, ties back into the issue with NGDP targeting. So can, I, I take it you would dispute that interpretation of events. In I would say, so. you know, the question is basically what is the baseline of what the economy would have done uh, in the absence of, uh, of QE? And of course, nobody knows the answer to that. So that's why it's something that, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can debate for, for a long time. Uh, when I look broadly at the evidence that we've accumulated 
over the last few years in particular uh, in terms of what central banks can do once they hit the zero bond on nominal rates, I'm persuaded by the idea that they can still have an effect through purchases of assets, uh, through reductions in the, in the term premium, uh, yeah. and that uh, the easing of financial conditions that took place uh, you know, around QE2, that that uh, also led to somewhat stronger growth than you would have had in the absence of it. Uh, how much? Uh, maybe half a percentage point, so we're not talking uh, a massive impact here. Certainly nothing like QE1, where the effect, in my view, was much, much bigger, uh, but, uh, but that was also in an environment in which markets were much more dysfunctional and in which, therefore, a central bank that uh, basically commits to, uh, to, to um, you know, putting a floor under financial conditions uh, can also have a bigger impact. Okay. Let's turn to the housing market. Um, you said that you think that the, um, the decline in home prices is set to end at some point next year, despite the sort of backlog and shadow inventory and just excess supply generally. Um, can you tell us why? The reason why we think that we're close to the end uh, of the downturn in housing is that we think the, the imbalance, the, the overvaluation of housing, the bubble is, uh, is behind us. When we look at uh, the equilibrium home price over time, uh, you know, in our model that basically depends on things like population, income, construction costs, costs of capital, uh, things that don't move very quickly. Uh, we had a very large overvaluation uh, of over 30% at the, at the peak. Uh, we have uh, unwound that uh, and currently we're pretty close to uh, fair value. Uh, now, there is still a lot of excess supply that is a short-term negative. That why we, that's why we think we'll probably see some further declines, 2 to 3%, uh, in 2012. And we will end up uh, significantly below the sort of equilibrium level. But, uh, but, but you know, our model basically says uh, it, it ends sometime in 2012. Uh, and then 2013 is sort of a flattish year. Uh, and then you start seeing home price increases after that. Uh, so not a quick bounce back. Not a quick bounce back. And, you know, the timing and the sort of quarter-to-quarter -quarter moves here uh, are, uh, of course, quite uncertain. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we do, we do think we're, we're reasonably close to the end. So we actually had some housing start numbers this morning, and the single-family numbers were, you know, as bad as they usually are. But it seems like multifamily... Uh, is, is starting to become one of the really legitimate bright spots in the U.S. economy. Is that something that you expect to continue? Yes, because uh, the multifamily market is much closer to uh, normal, uh, you know, normal supply levels. Uh, there's probably still some excess supply in aggregate, but there are many regional multifamily markets and rental markets where that's not the case, where supply is actually quite tight. Uh, and that is requiring some uh, further increases in uh, in building, in the single-family sector, you know we do seem to be getting uh, a you know a bottoming. We you know we think we'll probably see some increases in single-family housing starts, but uh, uh, it's still going to be several years, uh, you know, probably middle of the decade uh, until we've actually unwound all of the excess supply in that market. That is that's at least our baseline assumption. Okay. How far along is the consumer in the uh, deleveraging cycle, and to what extent does it matter? You think? I mean, in deleveraging in terms of the, the level of debt uh, or the debt-to-income debt to ratio, um, 
we think there's probably what? still further to go. Uh, there, you know, it depends a lot on which uh, which measure you look at. So as yeah. far as debt to income ratios go, uh, we think there's still further a further decline that uh, that will be necessary. Uh, we think that the pace of that decline is probably going to be a little slower than it has been in uh, in the past couple of years, uh, which means that the saving rate uh, doesn't necessarily need to rise a lot from the sort of three to five percent range that uh, we've been in recently. Uh, I you know I'm, I'm somewhat distrustful uh, on statistical grounds of the drop in the saving rate that occurred uh, over the over the last few months. Uh, you know there's there's still a lot of revisions that have yet to come in, uh, in those data. But broadly speaking, we'd say saving rate stays in that range, 3 to 5%, uh, so at higher levels than what you had at the peak of the bubble. Uh, but uh, in, 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 you know, in terms of the flows of spending and income, uh, we have seen the, uh, the, the adjustment there. Sure. Let's talk about exports for a minute. They're not a huge part of the U.S. economy, but I'm wondering to what extent a really meaningful recovery depends on a kind of reversal of the sort of trade and, I guess, capital flows uh, trends that we've seen since the late 90s and the extent to which uh, a U.S. recovery is dependent on a more global rebalancing. So I think that uh, that would certainly help a lot still. Uh, we have, we, we're still running a sizable current account deficit. Uh, it's only about half as large as it was at the at the peak in 2005 2006 but it's uh, it's still quite large it's still over 3% of gdp probably bigger than what you can sustain on a on a long term basis uh, and so the, the 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 flip side uh, of that is going to be that uh, uh, you know over time you will need to see stronger export growth and a rebalancing as you said from the you know housing sector from the consumer and from more domestically oriented sectors towards uh, export oriented uh, sectors both in you know mainly in the go in goods but but uh, but also tradable services so that that adjustment has not yet occurred we've seen the drop in the in the domestically oriented sector certainly in housing with a, with vengeance but uh, but you know in terms of where the the recovery uh, can come. I think a disproportionate part of that will need to be in the in the in the more externally oriented sectors. Okay, and a lot's been made about how corporate profits have rebounded so strongly despite the general sluggishness of the recovery, and a lot of it's come from just productivity gains sure. and cost cutting. And I'm wondering what you think needs to be done in order to get these companies to start you know, investing more in capital and, and in hiring, um, and what your general outlook is for for the corporate sector. So general, so my explanation for why profits have generally done well is primarily that uh, we've gotten some growth. It hasn't been great. Uh, it's been pretty sluggish. But it's come in an environment in which uh, the excess supply of labor is still very large. Uh, and therefore, wage gains have been very weak. Uh, and unit labor costs, which is ultimately what, uh, uh, what's going to be the most important uh, driver you know, unit labor costs essentially relative to, to, to price inflation, that's going to be your biggest driver of uh, corporate profit margins. Unit labor costs have been pretty much flat. Uh, and uh, so the, you've seen margin expansion. Uh, we think that uh, there uh, probably will be a little more of that, uh, but at a, at a reduced pace uh, relative to where we've been uh, over, the, over the past couple of years. Um, you know, on the, on the investment side, I'd say, we're seeing some recovery in investment. 
but uh, but it's a you know it's a relatively slow move, and the the reason is that it's not just profit margins that matter for that, but it's also utilization. Utilization continues to be uh, quite low. Certainly on a whole economy basis, there's a lot of excess capacity still in the economy, and that uh, that's also weighing on uh, on investment. Okay. Uh, given given what we're seeing in utilization, what we're seeing in profit margins, we don't really think that. There's a there's a huge puzzle there in terms of where investment is. We've seen a recovery, uh, but a muted one because of the excess capacity. Okay. Uh, I want to ask a more epistemological question. I guess you know this is a time when a, a lot of uh, research houses, investment banks, put out their forecasts for the year, of course. Right. And I, I guess what I want to ask is how you think your clients and the public at large should use your research, given that policy plays such an important role in economic outcomes now, and that's very difficult to predict, and just the potential that a lot of these forecasts are, are going to be wrong. Well, that's the world we live in. You know, uh, trying to predict the future, uh, unfortunately, means that uh, you know, some of the time your, your forecasts are wrong. The best way to use forecasts is to basically look at the analysis and see whether you can, you can benefit from the, from the analysis on which the, uh, the forecast is, uh, is based. And if you, uh, you know, if you if you do agree with uh, with a lot of the analysis, and maybe you can incorporate some of it into your, into your, your own thinking, uh, then perhaps uh, that's also going to be a more positive statement about the um, about the forecast uh, about the forecast itself. But it's, I think it's also important to be explicit about how what the forecast is based on, what the uh, you know what the errors. Uh, uh, around forecasts are, um, and uh, it's, I think it's useful to sort of quantify uh, some of the relationships that uh, go into the forecast. For example, the spillover from Europe, how large is it going to be for the U.S., uh, you know, the impact of fiscal policy. We try to put that together uh, in, in, you know, figuring out our own forecast, but if we are explicit about the ways that, uh, that these things hang together, then uh, our readers and our clients are able to uh, also take pieces of our analysis with, without necessarily uh, endorsing or uh, you know or taking taking over essentially the you know the, the 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 entire overall view. Okay. Last question: um, As we've seen with the uh, NGDP debate, some of your research has obviously had a, a pretty big impact on the policy debate. Um, any thoughts of your own on ever leaving the private sector and joining the policy side and trying to influence things more directly? I you know, look. I, I, I love being part of the uh, of the policy debate. I think uh, any economist is uh, uh, you know who's interested in macroeconomics is also going to be interested in you know debating uh, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and things like that. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly am, you know, very interested in continuing that debate. You know, where that's going to be, I don't know. I'm uh, at Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, I love what I do, uh, but you know, we'll see what happens in the future. All right, Jan Hatzius, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.